And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Don't you all love the worship ministry here, Sherwood? Amen. Seth and the team are doing an absolutely incredible job. There is so much talent in this church, it is mind-boggling. I love it. Love it. So, this morning, the subject is marriage. The text is Ephesians 5. And the level of difficulty is a solid 8.5 on the Paul Godhart scale of uncomfortable text. So last week, we focused on God's design for marriage, and the design is referenced in Ephesians 5.31, but it's actually rooted back over in Genesis 2.24. And God performed the very first wedding back in the Garden of Eden and gave a very simple layout for that design. It can be summarized in three words, leave, cleave, and weave. We are to leave father and mother. In that, God establishes new parameters for relationships. When you get married, your spouse becomes the most important human relationship in your life. And it doesn't mean that other relationships are not good and godly and important and close. It is that they must be shifted down underneath the relationship with your spouse. Then we are to cleave to our spouse. That means to unite with or be joined to. Your spouse is not your roommate. They are not a bill splitter. They are the closest human relationship in your life and the person with whom you unite your life. And then we're to weave together so that two become one for life. Marriage redefines our relationships as well as our priorities. We go from two to one, from mine to ours, from looking out for me to now doing what is best for us. The design is simple, leave, cleave, weave. And yet many people try a different design, add, separate, protect. They add the marriage relationship to every other relationship. And since nothing is overly distinct about it, it does not have the priority that God gave it. Their spouse simply feels like one among many. They separate lives into trivial categories of mine and yours. This is my car and your car. This is my money and your money. These are my kids and those are your kids. And finally, we protect our individuality at all costs. Fearful of giving of ourselves, sometimes people build a daily existence that is distinct and separate from their spouse. They do their own thing, they solve their own problems, they make their own way, they set their own goals, they have their own plans, and they just hope that one day when they get to where they want to go, their spouse is still around. There's never a thought about us, because in that setup, there's only room for me. That is not two becoming one, that is one living for two. So this last week when we left off, I encouraged everybody to sit with God's design. Leave, cleave, and weave. Reflect upon it. Ask God if there are places where if you're married, your marriage has gotten off path of that design. Or if you're single and plan to be married, that maybe there's part of your thinking or your plans that are not in alignment with God's word. 
So whenever a person is thinking from God's design, then what we find is the roles and responsibilities for husbands and wives, it flows out of God's intended purpose. Now this morning, we're going to take another step down this path, and we go back into Ephesians 5, and we're going to spend the lion's share of this morning's message capturing context. Because if the context is wrong, it doesn't matter what I say on the other side. We're going to miss the way this text is intended. Once we go through context, I'm going to begin with God's instructions for wives because that's where it begins in the text itself. Now, I'm going to encourage you to do what we did last week. I want to encourage you, hold back all judgment until we're done. Get all the way to the end of this because we don't want to hear parts. We don't want to get glimpses. You don't want to walk away with a soundbite. You want to walk away with the fullness of what God is saying in the text itself. So I invite you today, go with me in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 22 through 24 and also verse number 33. I am speaking this morning on God's instructions for wives. Now, let me just say again, I'm starting God's instructions for wives this week. We will finish that next week on Mother's Day, and I might begin to get a little bit into God's instructions for husbands next week as well. Then we finish that on the following Sunday. We're just taking our time walking through the text. No reason to rush this. Marriage is too big of an issue for us to walk away and not fully understand what God's saying on the topic. So that being said, I invite you to look with me, Ephesians chapter 5. We will be in verses 22 through 24 and then in verse 33. Here's what it says. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Go down into verse 33. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we get into the text, God, may your spirit guide us. Lord, I pray this morning that there would be ears that are open to hear truth, and at the same time, hearts that are submissive to the teachings of your word. God, may we not make it about us, but about you and about your glory. God will be grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Context is crucial for proper interpretation. Interpreting a passage in context, it means that we need to find what the original writer was saying to the original audience for the original purpose. We need to interpret it based upon the genre of the writing. We need to see how it fits within the whole of Scripture. No passage is of private interpretation. It's not to be pulled out and isolated from everything else. It is to be read into the flow of God's teachings. So I'm going to establish this morning five perimeters of context around these particular verses. Think of it almost like concentric circles. They are on your notes if you happen to have them there. And basically we're going to work on the outside and we're going to keep zeroing in until we get into the verses themselves. Each of these points along the way adds greater clarity and greater focus so that we interpret the text 
correctly. So we're going to begin on the outer ring. We're going to talk about the book, the book of Ephesians, for just a moment. So that's the first part that we stop with, the book. There are three major themes that are emphasized in the book of Ephesians. These are in your notes. The first is all Christians are united together in the body of Christ. There's a unity theme that goes throughout this entire book. Number two, all Christians have everything they need in Christ. There is a completeness that is being mentioned here. It talks about what you have. You are complete in him. And then number three, all Christians are called to live out these truths, these spiritual truths, for the glory of the Father, the building up of the body, and the advancement of the kingdom. It's not that you just follow these truths for you. It is that as you follow these truths, God is glorified. The body is strengthened. The kingdom is expanded. There is mission involved with us living it out. So said differently, Christians are united together, complete in Christ, and on mission for the glory of God. Now here's your background. The Apostle Paul is writing to believers at the church of Ephesus. Ephesus was a city that was known for the temple for Diana, for idol worship, for temple prostitutes, and for gory theatrical battles. It earned the title as the filth capital of the Roman Empire. Now, by the grace of God, there was a church established as Paul was returning to Jerusalem in A.D. 53. Because of the setting, because of the sinfulness of that city, because of the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if there were ever a place for God's people to stand out from the culture around them, this is going to be the place. Ephesus would be the place. So just as color pops from a drab background or just as light shines out of darkness, the Christians in Ephesus should have been standing out against the culture behind them. But that wasn't happening. Instead of culture seeing the power and the glory of God on display through God's people, the people of God had acquiesced to the standard of culture. So Paul writes this to believers in order to remind them of what they have in Christ, to strengthen them in their faith, and to teach them how to live out the truths of God's word before a lost world that is all around them. That's the book. Now let's talk about the section. The Apostle Paul is very linear in his teachings. He builds line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, walking his audience to an intended goal on the other side. The book of Ephesians is split into two sections. It begins with correct belief. Chapters 1 through 3 describe the contents of our spiritual account in Christ. It tells us what we have, what God did, where God found us, what God desires for us as his people. We are united in Christ, we are members of the same family, and we are partakers of the same grace. All of that is in chapters 1 through 3. It's focused on correct belief. Why is it important you start there? Because your actions flow out of what you really believe. It doesn't flow out of what you want to believe. It flows out of what you really believe. He starts with make sure the belief is right. Then he goes into correct behavior. That is chapters 4 through 6. It provides application for what we've been given. So in this section, the Apostle Paul teaches believers how to live out, how to apply 
all of the truths that are mentioned in chapters 1 through 3. Now, this is the part that is frustrating for believers. How many times in your personal walk with God, how many times have you talked to a well-meaning brother or sister in Christ, and they will say, I know what the Bible says, I just don't know how to live that. I don't know how to apply that. I understand this, but how does that fit here? Okay, that's why he's writing chapters 4 through 6. He's saying, everything I just taught you about correct belief, now let's work it out in practical settings. This is now correct behavior. Okay, do you see the split between the two? Chapters 1 through 3, correct belief. Chapters 4 through 6, correct behavior. Now, the Apostle Paul understood an incredible concept about how believers are to live. He understood this incredible connection between God's glory, God's people, and an unsaved world that's watching. Listen to this. Here's the key. God's glory is more fully reflected to unbelievers when they see how Jesus changes the way people actually live. In other words, if it's an unbeliever and you say, I'm a Christian, I go to church, and I read my Bible, here's what they think. Great for you. Not overly offended by that. That's wonderful for you. That's not for me, but that's wonderful for you. Here's the question that's in their mind. Here's what they're wanting to ask you. And if you say, do you have questions? Notice where it leads to this. Here's what they're wanting to say. Does any of that change how you live? You, you just saying you go to church, you read in your Bible, you're a Christian? Okay, but is it anything beyond believing intellectually in the person of Jesus Christ? At any point, does Jesus change the way you live, how you operate from day to day? Does he change your speech? Does he change what your marriage looks like? Does he change how you raise your kids? Does Jesus change the way you handle your money, how you deal with difficult people? Does he impact the way you make decisions, how you prioritize your life, how you handle discouragement? Like when the rubber meets the road of life, You following Jesus doesn't change anything. And if it does, listen, if it does, you don't have to beg to share the gospel. They will beg you to share it with them. The issue the church has a long time operated on is if we just build enough buildings and put enough invites out, people will naturally want what we have to offer. That is not the case. The Bible tells us that the unsaved person, a person who doesn't know Christ, they're spiritually deceived. It tells us their mind is clouded from the truths of God's word. What happens, though, is when the gospel becomes real in a person's life, they're like, I knew that person before they became a Christian. That's not the same person. And a lot of times they will sit for years and watch to find out if it's real. Are you going to stick with it? Is the change going to keep happening, or is this just some quick decision that doesn't impact your life in the long run? The Apostle Paul provides what we need to apply in verses 4 through 6. Now I want us to look at the chapter. We're coming in on our concentric circles. Chapter 5 begins with this incredible command. Be imitators of God. Wow. You talking about a difficult text for somebody to preach on a Sunday? Imagine just coming to church next week and I get up and say, I got one thought for you. Just imitate God. 
Y'all have a great day. I mean, that's, that's a powerful statement right there. He, he goes on in this to say, be imitators of God and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. The, the word love here is agape, that is selfless, perfect, unconditional love. It is a type of love that can only be expressed by God. And the text says, you love people in that way. Well, how exactly are we supposed to love people in a way that only God can love them? It's because it's not us loving them. It's God loving people through us. Remember what I've said multiple times. One of our books we've gone through by Major Ian Thomas, The Indwelling Life of Christ. Here's what he said. The commands of God are written to the life of Christ in you. So when you come to this text and it says, be imitators of God, that's the moment you say, I can't, but he can through me. That's, that's a moment of us submitting before him. So when that believer comes and they submit before God and they say, God, would you live this through me? He does for us and in us and through us what we could never do on our own. So for five chapters, the apostle Paul has been saying, you've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You're not waiting for a second installment from God. God found you. God saved you. He seated you with him in Christ in the heavenly places. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. And because of that relationship and because of that position in Christ, you are perfectly situated for God to live these truths through you. Now he says, be imitators of God and walk in love. Now, here's a very quick question. Is that command given to men, to women, or to both? Both. Both men and women are called to be imitators of God and love with agape love. Jump down into verse number 15. This is how we walk this out. It says, therefore, be careful how you walk. Okay, so verses 15 through 21, there's seven different verses talking about walking in wisdom. And there is this one overarching truth that you're going to find all the way through. The path of wisdom is paved by many selfless decisions. The Apostle Paul gives six examples of how believers can walk it out. Now, remember, we're in the application side of this book. We are in the correct behavior side of this. We already saw chapters 1 through 3. That's the correct belief. That's the truths you need to know. Now we're in the section right in the middle saying, this is how you live it out. This is how you walk it out. This is how you put shoe leather to the truths of God's word and live it in the everyday parts of life. And here he says, be careful how you walk it out. An overarching theme behind this is that the path of wisdom is paved by many selfless decisions. Similar question. When Paul says, be subject to one another to take a selfless path, is he talking to men? Is he talking to women? Or is he talking to both? Both, once again. Based on context, based on the complete picture of chapter 5, both men and women are called to love each other with agape love. 
Both men and women are to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, and both men and women are called to take the selfless path of wisdom. All right? Now let's go into the subject. We've gone from the book. We've gone through the section. We're in the chapter. Now let's look at the subject of what's happening in verses 22 through 33. The subject, the main topic, is marriage. Marriage is just one area where God wants to live these truths through us. It's just one area that God wants to be glorified through our lives. Now, if you'll remember, if you look over in your notes, flip your notes back over, very top part over here when it's talking about the book, one of the three themes that we find in Ephesians there is that all Christians are united together. There's that unity theme that is going on. That's one of the themes of the book. Now, let me ask you this. If a theme of the book is unity, and if marriage is one of the many ways God desires to be glorified in our life, does it make sense that God would give us a design for marriage that would bring disunity or problems into the home? No. Leave, cleave, and weave are God's design working towards unity, and here it is, and his glory, and his glory, and his glory. Ultimately, when believers live out the truths of a gospel-focused life, it's going to bring glory back to the Father. This is just one of those examples. Now, look at the verses. God's instructions for husbands and wives are not about worth, value, favoritism, or sexism. It's about order and design and how God can be most glorified in our marriages. If we approach the text from that perspective, you're going to find that this text will have greater understanding, bring about greater unity, and greater purpose in your marriage than ever before. Now, let me pause here for just a moment. I want to be personal. When I see what God calls Bria to do in our marriage... I know it is not going to be easy for her. She's got a tough job. For Christ to live through her, she will have to take a selfless path that involves respecting me as her husband and submitting to my leadership within the home. And I'm going to be absolutely honest. I'm not always right. I'm not always nice. I don't always make the right decisions. I've been known to be a hair bit opinionated at times. When I look at what she is called to do, she's got a tough path. But let's go on the other side of that. When Bria sees what God has called me to do, it's no walk in the park either. For Christ to live through me, I have to take the selfless path of loving Bria like Christ loved the church. That is not a romanticized Hollywood view of love. It is agape love. It is perfect love. It is selfless love. It is unconditional love. I am responsible to make sure that Bria is spiritually thriving. I am to love her in such a selfless way. I would be willing to sacrifice all of my dreams, all of my goals, my very life itself to make sure she becomes the woman God created her to be. That's hard. So here's the reason I bring that up. When the husband 
looks at the responsibilities of the wife. And when the wife looks at the responsibilities of the husband, it should cause both to drop to their knees in prayer for their spouse. Because apart from the grace of God, we're not going to be able to do it. Now let me go one step beyond that. Many of you know as you studied Scripture that Scripture indicates Christian marriage is to be a visual representation of Christ and the church. Here's why I bring that up. If somebody were to say, what does death to self and union with Christ look like in a practical way, we should be able to say, look at my marriage. The path of marriage is death to self. What did Jesus say? If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. How do you begin to see it worked out? In marriage. When it talks about taking a selfless path, talking about loving and unconditional love, like these types of union together, union with Christ. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. There's this union in him. And scripture talks about the fact it is leave, cleave, weave. When we see this marriage relationship, it should mirror the relationship between Jesus and the church. Did you know the ultimate goal of your marriage is not your happiness? It's the glory of God. It should be that when the unbelieving world looks at a Christian marriage, their eyes should be reflected back to God and say, that's not what everybody else's marriage looks like. That's better. That's complete. That's fulfilling. That's got purpose. They're working together. Two have become one. That's beautiful. Like, I want that type of marriage. And it should be, be that then that believer can come and say, can I tell you, it's not about me. It's all about the Jesus who set me free. Here's what he did in my life. It should be an ongoing testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Somebody might say, Paul, I can't submit to my husband. He's a jerk. Our wife, our husband might say, it's hard for me to love my wife like that. She doesn't even respect me. I get it. It's hard. Let, let me go a step beyond it. It's not just hard. It is impossible in our strength. If the enablement for us to live these out is based on our desire and our ability, we're all going to be in trouble. That's why Christian marriage is so different than anything. It should be that when we see this, we come back to God and say, only by your grace can that be taken care of in my life. That's the only way we're going to see it. Somebody might be saying, Paul, my marriage is so far gone. It, it, there's no way we could get back to this. I want to give you hope and encouragement this morning. God specializes in impossible situations. Hey, the greater the problem, the greater the glory. Remember, if the goal is to glorify him, which do you think is going to stand out to an unsaved world more? Here it is. Listen, a decent marriage that just makes it or a disaster marriage that's been transformed. When people know what's going on and they see that marriage come together, it brings glory back to God. God can do more in 30 minutes of broken surrender than we can do in 30 years 
of trying our best. Now let me pause here for just a second. I've been addressing the married people a lot. Let me talk for a moment to those who are single. I have done premarital counseling, marriage counseling, and post-marriage or divorce counseling. It is unbelievably rare, unbelievably rare to find someone do a complete 180 from dating to married. Here's what I mean by that. If they're an idiot when you're dating them, They, they just going to step it up a notch when you're married. Here's another one. If they are a Christian by name only when you're dating, do not expect them to be Billy Graham when you get married. It, now's the time to ask those questions. Now's the time to dig deep. Now's the time to say, what do you believe about this? People make most ridiculous mistake over and over again. They've watched too many Hallmark movies on this. And they just, they say, our love is so deep, it's just going to keep us together. No, it won't. No, it won't. Because when you wake up down the road and your spouse got morning breath and they agitated with you and you start scrapping it out, all of a sudden, your love for somebody else might be more attractive in that moment. This, this is where marriages last. It's this covenant relationship that happens before God. The reason I bring that up is because, yes, God can save anyone. Yes, God can redeem any situation. But when somebody recognizes a problem while dating, and they just try to avoid it and say, Maybe God will change them down the road. That is presuming upon the grace of God. That is not wise. Now, after all of that, I've got a couple of thoughts for wives. Like I said, most of this is setting up context. It is important for us to now see, based on context, that throughout this section, husbands and wives are reminded of their responsibilities not their rights. If we miss that, we read the text differently. So if a wife skips over her responsibilities to focus on what her husband is to do, that is reading it from the perspective of her rights. She might say, my husband is to love me unconditionally. My husband is to sacrifice for me. He's to love me as Christ loved the church. I deserve that. And since he's not doing that, I don't have to do what's been asked of me. That's reading it from the perspective of my rights. Paul did not say, wives, this is what you should expect from your husband. He did not say, husband, this is what you deserve from your wife. That's rights-based teaching. Instead, here's what he said. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's responsibilities-based teaching. The phrase, be subject to, it does not mean that the wife is inferior or less important in the marriage. Scripture is clear that all people have equal worth and value before the eyes of their creator. That is 
male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, Galatians 3.28. This is about order and design and accountability. In God's design for marriage, he established the husband as the head of the home and the wife as the helpmate of the husband. Now let's pause here for a moment. We need to see this text alongside of the other passages that talk about Christian submission. Because again, we have to see this is not about worth and value. This is about order and design. So scripture tells every Christian to be subject to spiritual leadership. It does not mean that pastors or elders have greater value in the eyes of God. It means that for order to be in the house of God, everyone cannot lead and everyone will not be held equally accountable. Another one, scripture tells believers to be subject to government and its rulers. It does not mean that government is always right or that rulers are always good. But for society to function, there must be roles and leadership, accountability, and respect for those positions. Scripture tells wives, be subject to your own husbands. It does not mean that the husband has greater value and that wives are inferior. It means that God holds the husband accountable and responsible for the state of the marriage and those within the home. If the marriage suffers, God goes first to the husband. As the spiritual head of the home, did he lead the family well? Did he love his wife as Christ loved the church? Did he steer his marriage towards God, towards the gospel, towards the kingdom? Or was he too busy building his own kingdom and steering things towards lesser pursuits? It is important to also say, being subject to your own husband does not mean being a doormat. You are not his servant, you are not his maid, and you are definitely not his mom. Let me also say, if the husband is abusing his wife, she needs to get to a safe place immediately. Being subject to your own husband does not mean being abused by your own husband. If that happens, call the police. Submit to your own husband as unto the Lord is about recognizing the role as spiritual head of the home, coming alongside of him and to support him in that role because that is a great responsibility and praying that God lives fully through you so that God is most glorified in your marriage. That's what it's about. When I talk to couples... It is rare to find a wife who absolutely refuses to submit to the leadership of her husband. It's not that it doesn't happen. It's just rare. More often than not, here's what I hear the wives say. I'm willing to submit, but he's not willing to lead. Men, having the role of spiritual leader is not the same as being a spiritual leader leader the position comes with responsibility I'll explain more of that in the weeks ahead when the wife respects and submits to the leadership of her husband she gives him what he needs the most in that marriage the greatest need of a husband in marriage is to know he has the respect as well as the support of his wife 
If he has that, he will take on bigger challenges. He will run after greater goals. He will work harder for his wife and for his family. He knows that he's in a safe place. He knows his wife supports him. So he's willing to risk things, to step out, to work harder. But if respect and support have been withheld from him, he's going to meander in his manhood. He's not going to walk courageously. He's not going to take on the bigger challenges. He's going to be left in this unsettled state of, I'd like to, but I don't know if I can. Is this the right? I I don't want to be in trouble. And he meanders in that. When the wife supports and encourages, you will be amazed as to what your husband can do. Listen, wives, you play a powerful role in the success and the strength of your husband. Now, let me go on to say this. Do not expect him to be a spiritual giant if you cut him down at the knees every chance you get. They work together here. You all know I've got one of the most encouraging wives that you can imagine. I cannot tell you where we would be today had it not been all along the way that Bria comes alongside and says, let's talk through it. Let's pray about this. And then her being willing to say, I think we can trust God. Let's move forward. It's not that that I cannot make decisions on that side. It's the fact that we walk through together. We're we're partners in life. But all I can say is, if I get to that position and we're not on the same page, I stop here until we're on the same page. Part of her being my helpmate is sometimes she sees things I don't see. She's focused on things that I've not even thought about yet. That's why it's two coming together as one. But I look at the the road. I look at the journey. I look at the adventure that God has placed us on. And I praise God along the way. God has given me a supportive, loving, encouraging, respecting wife. Because each of those steps, even if they fell apart, here's what I knew. We would be in that place together as a couple. Not I told you not to do that. When marriage is working like this, it's amazing how beautiful it can be. So what do you do right now? If that's what you want, but that's not where you are, here's four pieces very fast and we close. Submit to God. Abide in Christ. Talk to your spouse and start today. You can't change the past. You can start today. Submit to God. Ultimately, it's about him and his glory. Abide in Christ. Remember what I've said since the very beginning. Everything God desires to do in and through your life, he will accomplish out of the overflow of your relationship with him. When he wants to take your marriage to another level, overflow of relationship. When he wants to work on issues of the heart, overflow of relationship. All of it flows out of the relationship with him. Again, don't think that because there's been pain and brokenness and hurt in the past, that that's the place that you have to stay. Start today. Submit it before him. Remember, God can do more in 30 minutes of brokenness and submission 
than we can do in 30 years of trying our best. I'm going to ask you if you would, bow with me for just a moment. Heads bowed, eyes closed for just a moment. In a moment, we're going to open up a time of invitation. And in this time, it might be that husbands and wives simply want to be praying together over their marriage. It doesn't mean that there's a problem in marriage. It just simply means that we're spending four weeks talking about marriage. And it might be that a spouse just wants to say, God, help, help us. So if that's the case, know that there's room at the altar. You, you feel free to come forward. It might be that you walk away saying, I've got things I need to talk. We need to have a date night. We need to sit down and talk through some things. Take that next step for you. As the music starts to play in the background, one of the things I just shared a moment ago, everything flows out of relationship with God. If you don't have that relationship with God, toot that, start that today. Settle that today. It all flows out of relationship. It comes out of gospel transformation. There's going to be pastors that are down at the end of the aisles. And if you've got questions about those things, please come and ask them, like, what do I need to do to make this part right? So we're going to have a moment of prayer. The invitation time will be open. I encourage you, respond as God is leading you. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we are praying right now over marriages. We're praying over husbands and wives. We are praying over families, Lord. The enemy is attacking their design. The enemy is going after marriages. So God, we pray your blessing. We pray your covering, God. We, we pray your grace over top of the couples that are in this room, those that are watching online. Lord, we are asking today that if people are coming from a, a line of families that have been broken over the years, Lord, I pray that starting today, there's going to be legacy setters for years down the road. God, may you change the course of those families' future because of your design, your spirit, your way. Lord, we need you. We'll thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing?